Well, we are in Ephesians um, chapter 3. So um, feel free or please turn with me or pull out your device and look there, Ephesians 3. Now, I, I don't know if you're like me, but there have been times where maybe I'm at home or maybe in the workplace or with friends and Maybe I've had a kind of a conversation or I'm thinking through something in my head and I, I turn to maybe Kelly and I, I jump into a conversation and she gives me the, a blank stare and I realize um, I, I, I kind of jumped in in the middle of my thoughts and I need to fill her in of, of where I've been. Or maybe someone talks to you and they begin kind of in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a scenario and you're like, uh, I think I need a little more detail. Can you fill me in? There's a gap here. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. That was going on in my head. And Paul, as we get, it's kind of interesting. As I was reading, I've read through this Ephesians several times during my studies, but a, a couple weeks ago when I started looking at Ephesians 3, and I read this first verse, I was like, Paul just kind of stops. He says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of of you Gentiles. And maybe even in your translation, if you're using the ESV, there's a little dash. And it's marking that he, it's, his train of thought just shifts. And there's a change there, right there. So he says, for this reason, and as I read this, I was like, for this reason, what, Paul? For this reason, you do what? And he just kind of stops. And he doesn't, though, he does finish his thought, though. But it takes him a little bit um, till till Ephesians 14, where he says, For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. And then he goes into this prayer, and he prays for the brothers and sisters in the churches there, and he, he prays for them. But it's almost like he begins in, and he, he says, For this reason, he's going to pray for them. But he tells them that I'm a prisoner of Christ because of you. And it's like he pauses, and I don't know if it's that he feels the weight of that statement that I'm in prison for Christ, a prisoner of Christ, on your behalf uh, because of, of my mission to you. And he, he pauses. Maybe there's a moment now, you have to always be careful to jump into the mind of an author, even a, a modern-day author, to know their thoughts and their emotions, because we get it wrong a lot. But Paul, I believe, gives us a hint at the end of our passage this week. In verse 13, he says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. So Paul has this mission to the Gentiles and he's going to show them clearly that he's in prison. But this is something the Lord is doing. It's not a weight that they should bear. This is God has given him this stewardship to share the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. This gospel that calls them Jew and Gentile into one body one gospel, one message, and salvation for both. And, and we will see this as he goes through that he makes clear um, that this is God's doing. And it's really a testimony of the calling of Paul. And he explains that to them. And he encourages that in to them as he goes through these things. As one who, as we've seen in the last few verses and chapters that he preached to those who are far off, that they might be drawn in by the blood of Christ, those who are without hope and without God in this world, drawn in. And this is his message. And as we read this, and as we walk through this testimony of Paul, and as he talks about being the, this really a steward of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can learn and be challenged by the example and the testimony and the calling of Paul. So that's what we're going to see here. So begin in verses 1 and 2, we see a steward of God's grace 
really dies daily to self. And this is the, the model that we have in the life of Paul. In verse 1, again, he says, For this reason, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he begins, and first he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And you notice that he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome, or I'm a prisoner on behalf of the Jewish leaders who have come against me. But he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Uh, he is one who's willing to follow the words of Christ. I think of the words of Christ in Luke 9, 23 through 25, where, where Christ tells the disciples, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would lose his life whoever would save his life would lose it but whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul or himself so it's way different than uh, how our culture thinks about self and identity and our dignity Um, our culture says it's really about following after your own heart, right? Defining yourself, determining your destiny. But Christ says, no, instead, die to self. Be one who's willing to be a prisoner of Christ. I've been listening through a a sermon series, and the pastor, he referenced a book by a guy named Trevin Wax. Maybe a few of you may be familiar with him. He works for Lifeway and writes... Uh, blogs on the Gospel Coalition, and he just referenced this book called Rethink Yourself. It says, the power of looking up before looking in. And I haven't had time to, to read the book, but I listened to a couple of interviews with Trevin Wax, just him talking about the book, and just some of the, the concepts he talks about. He's really addressing some issues in our culture that point us really away from Christ. And talk about in our culture right now, there's, we have a culture of first looking in. Kind of the idea that you first look in, you find your desires, you find the passions of your heart, and you start with yourself, and then you begin following after those. And then you look around, so you look in, then you look around, and you find people who are, will support and affirm you in, in those um, decisions you've made from following out things out of your heart, what you have decided will be your own destiny, and you find people to kind of support you and help you along. And then at the end, you can maybe look up. And you find a spirituality, because we're, we're made to be those who are worshipers, so our hearts long for that. But then in our world, we kind of find a spirituality that maybe fits with my desires and, and kind of the destiny I've decided for myself. Um, but the question might be, well, how, how's this working for us as a culture? Um, it leaves us very easily angered. It leaves us easily put off, offended, easily depressed and distressed and stressed, yeah. It's looking to self to find real fulfillment, but we're not made for that. We're not made to find fulfillment in ourselves. That's always going to fall flat. We're not made to sit on the thrones of our life and find our significance within. We're not made for that. So, of course, that leaves us depressed and angry and easily irritated. Trevin Wax, he, he says that the top commandments in our culture today, if you were to ask, like, Christ would ask, what, are, what, are the, the, what is the... The, the main commandment. What is the most important commandment? But if we were to say that in our culture, Trevor Wax says it would be be yourself would be the commandment number one. And the second is like it, to affirm whatever self your neighbor chooses to be. 
but that's not truly loving. And dignity in, self, in our own self-given identity uh, and not in the dignity that we are given as image bearers is going to be a fragile dignity. A dignity that's going to need to be constantly affirmed and propped up by others. A dignity that is, that is found in personal choice really is a very fragile dignity. Trevin, Trevin talks about that. It just can't stand up to criticism. But the rock-solid dignity that we find that we are image bearers and that we are those who are loved by Christ, there is great hope in that. And Paul begins his walk in his life by looking first, not inward, but looks up to Christ. He is one who is a, an apostle of Christ, one chosen, one who is a prisoner even of Christ. And he finds his identity in Christ. And I think of how in Ephesians and Philippians, as he writes... He's in prison, and when we say to Philippians, remember Paul talks about joy all over the place. Because his identity is not rooted in some self-defined definition and a dignity in self that's easily broken and fragile, but one rooted in Christ that cannot be wrecked. Our family, we've been walking through, um, off and on, we'll, we'll go through this catechism called the New City Catechism. It's based on a, a lot of different catechisms, kind of all pulled together. And, and we found out that if we try to memorize, like that's the goal is to memorize it, that doesn't work. And everyone's frustrated and it doesn't go very far. But if we just kind of read them and talk about them and kind of review them, that works out okay. Yeah, most of the time. Okay. So, but the first one, the first one, the first question is what is our hope in life and death? And this one, I think, is it's based on a question in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our hope in life and death? That we are, come on, Anthony, you know it. You want to say, that we are, we are not our own, but we belong to God. We are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is our hope in life and death? We are not our own. But we belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not about us. We belong. We belong. We're brought in and given great dignity in Christ Jesus that we could lay all aside to follow him and find great joy. That is our hope in life and death, that we're not our own. And Paul says, a prisoner of Christ, not a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you. And then he talks about being a, a steward, that he's been given the stewardship of grace, this gospel given to him. And, and we don't have time to delve into all of that, but if you want to delve a little bit, think about the stewardship and the ambassador. You could look at, at Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the parable of the talents, given these talents, and then the responsibility and sent out. Or you might look at 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, where Paul talks about us being ambassadors of Christ and having the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul has this. And we're going to see these ways that he, he is a faithful steward as we walk through. So as we then kind of move to our second point, a steward of God's grace rests in God's sovereignty. And normally I have next to the points I have uh, verses. This one, the whole passage is about this. But I'll just point out some things. Again, first, that first one, that he's a prisoner of Christ. Again, he's saying this is by God's hand. And verse 2, he says he's a he has the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him. So it wasn't chosen, but it was given to him. 
And he embraced this gift of this stewardship. And so the weight, if even the, the, the imprisonment and the persecution isn't upon those he goes to, it's God's gift that he has been given to go out. In verse 3, then we also see how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So this is one that was made known. This message was given to him, made known by God, by God's hand. It wasn't something of Paul's own creation, but it was revealed to him by God. And then verse 7, we say, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me by the working of his power. So again, something that was given to him, a gift to him, uh, something the Lord gave him uh, by God's sovereign hand and, and set him on this course as an agent or an ambassador or a steward of the gospel. And then verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles and searchable riches of Christ. Again, it was given to him by God. So he went out by the hand of God. These things are happening. And then verse 11 through 12, again, the sovereignty of God is seen. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So this is according to this gospel message. This is according to God's eternal plan and purpose. And we can rest. In that, we can rest. God's in charge. And this message and these callings he's given us, we can rest in. And then, as we continue, we see that Paul, his faithfulness, his uncompromising message. So a steward of God's grace uh, doesn't, doesn't compromise the message of the gospel. There's no compromise in the message, even though it's not a popular one, one that's he finds himself now in prison because he's been sharing it. He doesn't compromise it. How, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is made known to the sons of men, who it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So as we see this, that he's, he's faithful to this message. Again, not one that was often not popular at all. One that he received imprisonment and stoning and persecution. But he was faithful. He did not compromise in that message. And he speaks about it as a mystery, uh, this mystery of Christ. And I think I've mentioned this before, but this mystery, it's not the mystery of like something that needs to be solved. Like when we go to, if you go to an escape room and you have all these different puzzles you need to figure out to be able to get out of the room and it's a mystery to be solved. It's not that kind of mystery, but it's one that it was something that was once hidden or obscured, but is now revealed and made clear. Again, something that was hidden and obscure, but now has, made, has been revealed and made clear. And this is the mystery, one that is a mystery of the fullness of the gospel and the hope of salvation that's for all people, Jew and Gentile, all brought in to be one people. And we see that, and we've seen that, and we'll continue to see that as we walk through Ephesians. But this is the message. He's confident that they will understand this mystery and this calling that he has. And Paul, it's important to know that he's not preaching a, a new message. Uh, it's really not a new gospel or a new plan that God is just, oh, this is this new plan I have. 
Because we see that it, there's this message throughout the Old Testament of God's heart for the nations. Think of even when God called out Abram or Abraham to go. He tells him in Genesis 12, 3, so very early on, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God had a plan for salvation to go out to all peoples. Think of Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7, and then verse 10. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring, brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Then verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So in verse 6, we see, though, the mystery that was hidden that's now revealed is that through Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile, these two are all brought into one body and one community and one humanity and one society. So there's these two that are brought, who are far off, who are brought in to one people, one body, one family, one household, one temple, things that we studied in the end of of chapter two. And we see this is the mystery that's gone out. So Paul goes to both Jew and Gentile, and he finds this particular calling of the Lord to go to the non-Jews, to so those who are not ethnically Jews, to share of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is faithful to go and share this message. And there are many who, who do not like this message. And we see in verse 6, let me just read that again. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. See that Jews and Gentiles, the fellow heirs, they, we're co-heirs. We are brought in. Several weeks back, I gave the illustration of grace of how maybe you're, you're driving and, and you're driving too fast. You get pulled over by a police officer and, and he gives you a ticket. But he says, hey, I'm going to pay for that ticket in full. You don't even have to show up at court or anything. It's all taken care of. And uh, I'm going to write you into my will. You're going to be part of my inheritance. But it's an amazing thing. But then he's saying you're all brought in. Y'all inheriting of all of these things. So. He said, this is an amazing, this was not known before. It, it's brought in that the, Jew, the Jews and Gentiles, we're fellow heirs, members of the same body. There's this huge unity and picture of unity that's seen here. And lastly, they're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Promised Holy Spirit and eternal life that we see. So Paul, he's faithful to preach. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't compromise the message, but he preaches it. I think of the story of Paul and Barnabas, just, I think this last week in my reading, just in my own personal quiet time, in Acts 13, and they're in Antioch of uh, Pisidia. And let me, let me write, read that to you. This is Acts 13, 44 through 49. The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So he's been preaching the next Sabbath, man, everyone comes out to hear Paul and Barnabas. But the Jews saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul what was what Paul had was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you 
thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And I love this, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole regions. So this is a picture of Paul's faithfulness to this message, to preach the goodness of the gospel to all people. I was thinking about that a little bit last night. Uh, our family, we went up to Calvary New City. Uh, that uh, They are a church plant on, in East, Colfla- East Colfax. And uh, there's a building there where another organization called Jesus on Colfax. Um, it's a nonprofit that's beginning there, and they're, they're renovating this old building. And in this old building, they um, have this this worship concert in there that we go, we got to go and be a part of. And it's a place where I, growing up here, I never would have thought I'd been worshiping Jesus on East Colfax, but the Lord has put us there. And it's a place where the nations are in that area and they're beginning. So it's this exciting time. The pastor, uh, Matt Horn, who has been here before, he was just overwhelmed just to be able to finally just sing God's praises in that place, on that city block. And it's a message for all peoples to be brought in. And then verse 7 through 8, we see a steward of God's grace rests in the power and the grace of God. A steward of God's grace rests in the power and the grace of God. It's not in ourselves, but in the Lord. Let me read verse 7 and 8. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So we, we can just note here just the humility of Paul. He says, I'm the very least of all the saints. And we know of Paul, just the little bit we hear of his, his life before Christ, when he was, went by Saul, his, his Hebrew name, that he was one who went to persecute Christians. He put them in jail. He cast votes that they might be killed. He, he watched over the stoning of Stephen. And I think if we were to have all of the memoirs of Paul um, during that time, we would just be overwhelmed. And we would understand why he said, I'm the very least. But then the Lord poured out his grace upon him and rescued him. That he could be even one who, he calls himself a chief of sinners in, in 1 Timothy 1.15. But he was given grace, much grace. Grace to be able to share of the goodness of the grace of God. Remember how we define grace from one dictionary the absolute free expression of the loving kindness of God to him, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. So grace, you rest in the grace of the Lord as one who is, was the least of all the saints. And then power. He was given the power of Christ to, to go out and to preach these things. And this isn't the first time, if you remember, in Ephesians where he's talked about the power of Christ. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 19, 
he prays for the church. He prays that they would understand just the hope of their calling, the riches of the glorious inheritance that they have, and then that they would understand the power that they have in Christ. In verse 19, we read that. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work, working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the power is that of Christ. It's that resurrection power that he rests in. And he knows, he can just look at his life, one who was the least of all the saints, one who rebelled and tried to crush the message of the gospel was given new life. I've been listening to an audio book called Seek First by Jeremy Treat. A really great book. It just talks about how we, we follow that, that call to seek first his kingdom and how kingdom is just an important theme throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. Anyway, this is from that book. It said, Many Christians believe in the resurrection but live like Jesus is still in the tomb. This may, they may believe intellectually that he rose, but for all practical purposes, he is uninvolved, as if he went back into the tomb for a nap. If Jesus is alive, it means that there is power available to us that is greater than any challenge or obstacle we ever face. And then he says this, I think this is really helpful. He says, this power is not a force to be wielded, though. He is a person to be known. The power for the Christian life is found in knowing Christ. Let me read that again. The power is not a force to be wielded, though he is a person to be known. The power of the Christian life is found knowing Jesus Christ as we look to him. And even as we walk through this Advent season, seeking to fix our eyes on Jesus. Paul speaks about that power in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, when Christ says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul continues, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, with insult, with hardship, persecution, and calamity. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So we see this. He rests in the grace and the power of Christ. And then, as we continue, verses 8, and, 8 through 10. We see that a steward of God's grace is faithful to share the gospel. A steward of God's grace is faithful, faithful to share. It's uncompromising to that message and then faithful to share it to all people. And that's what Paul did. Second part of verse 8. To preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul, here he is one who, who preaches the gospel to, to all people and goes out to Jew and non-Jew and he speaks to them about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I just love that term, unsearchable riches. It is such riches that are without limit. We can't reach the bottom of the riches of Jesus Christ. And 
He's one who goes out and he preaches that to all people and reveals the truth of God, the creator of all, bringing light to, to everyone. He preaches those who are far off and without hope and without Christ. And they're drawn in and they're united. Again, there's this amazing point throughout this beginning of Ephesians that the Lord has brought in these two separate peoples and people of all ethnicity and makes them one and united in Christ. And the church then, the church then is one as they're united together, people varied and different, yet one in Christ. They declare the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God um, through their unity and, and through the church so that not just the world sees, the physical world, but even the spiritual world. They look in, both angels and demons look in and are amazed at what God has done and what God is doing. And they see the work of God redeeming this new humanity, this new community, the church in Jesus Christ. And this is part of God's eternal plan. And then we see in verses 12 through 13, 12 through 13, a steward of God's grace finds confidence and rest in Jesus. In whom we have boldness and access, speaking of Christ, with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul here, he doesn't say, oh, trust your heart. Find confidence in yourself. Be confident in who you are. You be you. And rest. No, he doesn't say that because he knows that's not going to bring rest. It's just a fragile hope. Now Paul says, we come with boldness and confidence to God through Jesus Christ. Through the person and work of Christ and our faith in the person and work of Christ who died for us in our place and rose again victorious that we might have life and true solid identity that can't be easily rattled by one statement or one criticism. We're not created to find our root identity and confidence in ourselves. We are not the creator. Uh, we're the created. I've heard it said recently that we make horrible gods. <laughs> we flunk tests both in school um, and as we get older, we flunk eye exams and physical tests. We need surgeries. We need medicine, we need advisors, we need counselors, and those are all fine things we do, and as we get into these winter months, and it's dark, and it's cold, and man, I need, I need counseling during this time, my heart, this is, it's a horrible time, so we need it, we need something outside of ourselves. it's not found within, it's found by looking up first, we find our identity in Jesus Christ. So that we're not so easily discouraged and angered by others because our hope is so much greater than a comment or two. So then he says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, Paul says. This trial that he's going through, it's by the hand of God who has given it to him and called him to spread the gospel to all peoples that they might come in and find hope in Christ and be a reflection and a speaking of the wisdom of God to all peoples and all places. 
So we can rest. We can rest in Jesus. God's grace in Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you come and you realize that uh, you've been looking in first for all of your hope and all of your identity and all of your destiny and all of your whatever it might be and you recognize that that's not going really great for you. You're easily angered, easily discouraged, easily broken by a comment. That's because you're looking in the wrong place to find your dignity, to find your identity. And might you even this morning turn from your sins and yourself and find your life and your dignity and your identity in Jesus Christ by trusting him as your Lord and Savior, one who was fully God and fully man, who died on the cross in our place, but did not stay on the cross or in the grave, but rose again victorious freely giving us mercy and grace that we can find life in him. So this morning, even if you desire to to learn more about following Christ and finding your identity in him and in him alone and finding new life and forgiveness in him, uh, that is one of the the great things you can use the card for, just marking, hey, I want to know more about following Christ or come talk with us and let us know that you want to follow Christ. But if you followed Christ this morning, may we be reminded that we are, we are stewards of the grace of God. And might we rest in him and even be reminded, sometimes we begin to, to look in first for our identity and our dignity, and we need to be reminded, no, we need to look up. We need to look up to Christ and find rest in him and his power and his grace. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you so much.